As many of you know, there's a, um, there's a revival happening at Asbury University that has spread to a variety of other uh, colleges and universities, which is uh, a remarkable thing. We must pray. Uh, revivals are messy, and that means that not everything is going to be theologically up to par. I'd rather have messy than dead. Amen? Yeah. So let us pray that that revival will have all of the good impact that it may not just transform the lives of some college students, but it would the, faint, the, the flames of revival would fan across our whole nation and even East White Oak Bible Church. Amen? Now, <clears throat> I'm old enough to be part of the Jesus People movement of the 1970s, which was, as you look back on it, a bit of a revival, right? Where vast numbers of young people came to Christ. And I remember we would gather together and, you know, sing songs, and it was kind of the beginning of uh, contemporary Christian music and all that sort of thing. It was a real, real exciting moments. There was a song that we sang that forms a pretty good introduction to the message this morning. I'll try to do it. It was, uh, what would happen is, you know, people would be gathered, stuffed in a room, and there'd be one guy with a beard and a guitar playing, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you, would, uh, you would sing it, and, and when, when it was your day, the day that you, the day of the week that you had trusted Jesus, you would stand for this, right? So it would go something like this. It was on a Sunday, somebody touched me. It was on a Sunday, somebody touched me. It was on a Sunday, somebody touched me. I know it was the hand of the Lord. And so then, of course, it would go Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And if you trust, had trusted Jesus but you didn't remember the day of the week, that was okay because the last verse was, it was on a some day. Okay, so, but, but, but here's the deal. This morning, what we're going to do is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. So I invite you to open your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. And in this section, Paul uses the word call nine times, eight times as a verb, once as a noun, and this idea of calling is super important. When it was that God touched you, called you to Himself. And so the first two-thirds of this message is going to be different than what I normally do. It will be very much of a theological discussion, a theological theme of this call, and then the last third will get into the text because Paul is going to explain um, some applications of that call. But if we don't know what he means when he says call, it's going to be really hard for us to understand the passage. So that's why we're going to take some time to talk about this. This will be a theme that for many of you will be brand new to you. You've never heard of this idea of an effective call. And so I'm happy to be able to introduce it to you this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. 
This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Please have a seat. We all live lives thinking that we're more in charge than we are, and really this section is going to be about the issue of autonomy, self-rule, versus living wholly, completely for the Lord because of His amazing, majestic grace that He has poured out on me that I did not deserve, could never earn. It's astounding and is worth giving up every bit of my wants and desires. So, one calling is more important than any other. There are two calls that we're going to talk about this morning, something I'll call the general call, and then something I'm going to call the effective call. This effective call is more important than any other calling that you'll ever experience in your life. Now, to introduce this, I want to ask you a question. I came to Christ for salvation, but why and how did I actually come? When most of us answer that question, we think about it solely from the point of view of ourselves and looking at the circumstances surrounding which we were introduced to the gospel and where we perhaps prayed a prayer to say to God, I, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in what you did at the cross to forgive me of my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. But you're all, it's always thinking about your circumstances, your situation in life. What Paul wants us to do when he uses this word call is to pan the camera out about a billion light years and look at little tiny you way down there and say, what was it that actually brought about our salvation? Now, people have developed various answers to this question. It is tied to this question. How much is God in charge of? Let that sit on you. And if you answer anything but everything, you're wrong. <laughs> He's in charge of it all. And so, through church history, 
various people have developed different answers to this question. I came to Christ for salvation, but why and how did I actually come? Now, I won't give you the church history here. I'll just give these various views. Uh, The Pelagian view uh, comes from a guy named Pelagius. I came by myself. I came to Christ without any action from God. I just saw it and believed it. The semi-Pelagian view is I started to come and then God helped me along. The Lutheran view, God brought me and I did not resist. The Arminian view, God enabled me and I cooperated with God. God and me working together brought about the, 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 the um, salvation by faith. And then the last one, which of course you know is the right one because that's how preachers preach, the Calvinist view, I naturally resisted God. I'm dead. He called me and I could not help but come. Okay? Now, there is a general call to everyone everywhere. Don't miss this because it's important. There's a general call to everyone everywhere to come to Jesus. Consider Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's an invitation to all people everywhere. Or Matthew 11:28. Jesus, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or Jesus in John chapter 7 where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Or one of the last verses of the Bible, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So there's a general call to salvation that is for everyone, everywhere. There's some parts to that general call. The explanation of the facts of the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, uh, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So part of the general call is the explanation of the facts of the gospel. Along with that, there is a conditional promise of forgiveness. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, there's the condition, whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. There is an invitation to believe. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's an invitation we give to everyone, everywhere. Part of this general call is also the possible conviction of the Holy Spirit. John 16, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The key point to make about this general call is that it can be both resisted 
and rejected. Jesus, uh, in John chapter 1, in his prologue, John says, he w- Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There was a general call that was resisted and rejected. Do you remember the plaintive Sorrow that Jesus expressed as he looked over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Or Stephen, right before he was stoned, said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. There's a general call that is resisted and rejected. Hebrews chapter 4, saying through David long afterward, today, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And people will be held accountable for resisting this general call. Consider Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas said, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This does not make the general call, the fact that all these things are true, doesn't make it fake It doesn't make it a sham. It's a genuine offer from God to the world. But here in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul uses the word call, he is not talking about this general call. He is talking about what we might term the effective call. This call does more than invite This call actually brings a person into right relationship with God. uh, Some of the texts that are involved here are the verse that we began our service. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So think about this span of salvation as we look at the one billion light years away from us. There's the predestination of God in eternity past, the effectual calling of us to Himself, our being justified by grace through faith, and one day our becoming like Jesus, glorified, because we will see Him as He is. We see this effective call earlier in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. This isn't a general invitation. This is people who were called 
to being brought into a right relationship with God. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many were wise, according to human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing. And what's the guarantee? Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now this... Effective call does not force a person against their will, but rather it enables a person to believe the gospel. So in Acts 16, there's a woman at Philippi named Lydia. And the Bible says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or... This beautiful verse in John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is not a general call. This is an effective call. The Lord called me, and I could not help but come. Or Philippians chapter 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, this effective call is not the end of the process of an individual's salvation, as we remarked on Romans 8. Rather, it is part and parcel of it. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, or 2 Peter chapter 1, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Or Revelation 17, 14, speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So, God uses various means to extend this effective call. What are the means? Well, the, the instrument is always the gospel. No one is called apart from the gospel. You don't have the gospel, there's not going to be an effective call. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The agents are those who tell the gospel. Uh, Romans chapter 10, how will they call on him whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear unless someone is preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? It's through people telling the gospel that God works His effective call. The uh, effective agent, then, of this effective call is not people. It's not by 
well, we did a good job proclaiming the gospel this time, and so that means there's effective work, and we did a lousy job doing it this time, and it was not effective work. Um, in fact, there's all kinds of stories of how people come to Christ despite the awful efforts of people to proclaim the gospel, right? Charles Spurgeon is a famous one. This guy just kept saying, come to me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he couldn't say anything else. And Charles Spurgeon came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and said, I can't help but come. <laughs> it's amazing. The glory of God. The effective agent is always the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Titus 3, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The effective agent is always the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that this may be a new teaching to some of you, and so I want to anticipate some objections that you may have to this idea of an effective call. Let's think about some objections. Uh, one that comes most to mind is that, well, this means that some people receive the effective call and others don't. That's unfair. Where's the fairness in that? Isn't God an equal opportunity salvation provider? But let's understand a couple of things. First, not everyone even receives the general call, do they? There are two billion people on this planet right now who have never heard the name Jesus Christ. Some people never even receive the general call. The simple fact is that all do not have the same opportunity to become believers in Jesus. God does not treat everyone alike. God is not obligated to treat rebel sinners with grace. Now, if we were all pretty good, then God would be obligated to do that. But we are not pretty good. We are spiritually dead. We are rebels. There is none of us that quote-unquote deserves grace, let alone everyone deserving it. No one deserves it. The fact that God is gracious to some is not unfairness to others. No one will say in hell, but this is unfair. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke? The rich man doesn't say to Abraham, wait a minute, this isn't fair. He does not say that. He says, could somebody go warn my brothers? It's not about fairness. One way in which we might want to think about this is uh, with the passage I have there on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 7. The reason why I bring it up is that we don't seem to be too bothered by the fact that there was unfairness with God in salvation in Old Testament times. We somehow think that we're more worthy or deserving of 
you know, this equality thing. But remember, in the Old Testament, there were lots of nations on the earth, and God set His attention on one nation. That's it. And the only way you were saved was by somehow connecting with that nation. Now, there were, other, there were people that were outside that nation that became part of the people of God, but only in their connection with Israel. Uh, and, and so, the people of Israel might have thought, well, look at us, look how great we are. God anticipates that in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That means separate The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so you might say, well, why Israel? Look at the next verse, Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you, and you might want to just stop the verse right there, okay? It was not because you. (laughs) It was not because you anything, right? That's it, not because of you. It was not because, and he adds, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. This is really an idiom for saying, actually, you're no great shakes. There's nothing really virtuous about you at all. It wasn't just about population. There's nothing virtuous. And by the way, doesn't the history of Israel remind us there's not all that many great things, right? But notice verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. It's grace that we are invited to the table. A second objection, what about people who respond to the light that they have? You know, it seems like if, if someone's responding to the light that they have, then God would, would respond. And the answer is, nobody does apart from the Holy Spirit. Nobody does. We're all rebels. But if the Holy Spirit is at work in effectively calling someone, I don't care where they are. They can be in the most remote spot on the planet. And you know what God will do? God will move heaven and earth, perhaps to send you to that person to tell them about Jesus so that they would know him and have eternal life. Remember, the, God, the only way the effective call uh, works is by the proclamation of the gospel by people with the agency of the Holy Spirit. Aren't all invited to the banquet? Yes, but the effective call is more than an invitation. In Wayne Grudem's words, it is a summons from the king of the universe that has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. Such a call is an act of God that guarantees a response. You see, if anyone, quote-unquote, deserves salvation, 
there would be a means to accuse God of unfairness here. But since no one deserves salvation, the only response we can make to God's declaration of His calling is worship for His grace, unworthy as we all are. And since we do not know who is called, nor when they will be called, we who are called have a mission to keep proclaiming the general call to all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. I hope no one in this room is thinking, well, I guess I'm not called, so I won't believe. No, you believe, and then you will see with joy that the Lord of the universe has called you to Himself. You believe, and then you go, whoa, look what God has done. Now, some people remember the circumstances of their calling very clearly. It was on a Tuesday somebody touched me, right? You remember the precise circumstances of it, like the day of the week. But remembering those details is not as important as the call itself is. Aren't you glad that John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the world that He gave His only one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him and remembers the date will not perish. It, it doesn't say that, right? So, remembering those details is not as important as knowing that the call itself happened. And if you are worried that you don't remember, this is where the ordinances of the church are so powerful to us. First, I suggest that you look upon your baptism as the reminder of your calling. Now, we have some opportunity here where people can be baptized. There's a baptism class starting next Sunday to be baptized on Easter Sunday. If you are a believer in Jesus and have not been baptized, I urge you to take advantage of that opportunity so that this will be a reminder God did something to me. He saved me. And secondly, I suggest that every Lord's table that you celebrate, you remember your calling, that it came from God, an irresistible invitation of love from the King of the universe to transform you and to make you His own. All right, the theology lesson is over. Now, that's what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 7, eight times as a verb and once as a noun, this word call or calling. So, let's think about some applications. <clears throat> First, what position do you have in life that is bigger than this? And the answer ought to be uh, nothing, right? Your position as a married person, nope, not a, higher, not a higher thing than my call from God. My position as an unmarried person, not more important than my calling from God. My position as a parent, not more important than my calling from God. My position and uh, my childlessness, not more important than God. Paul's point here 
is that before we start getting all excited about whether to marry or not or how much time to spend in rejoicing and mourning and buying and selling and our dealings with the world in general, we need to think deeply, really deeply about the grace of God in His effective call to those who are believers. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. And if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, the application is, of course, to repent and believe. This is the only way that you will know that you have received an effective call. You cannot know it in advance. Only by looking back can you say with certainty, I received the effective call from God. So now, Paul tackles two very touchy subjects and how our receiving an effective call from God impacts those subjects. Those subjects are ones that continue to trouble us today. The first is racial and national identity, and the second is our economic and social status. So in verses 18 through 20, Paul says that racial or national identity does not impact following the real call. No Jew should think that becoming un-Jewish will make his calling from God more real. Were you at the time of your call already circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks of it. No Gentile should think that becoming a Jew will make his calling from God more real. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Compared to knowing God and this effective call, all racial and national issues are nothing. And I hasten to add that just as last week where I reminded you that we need to be thinking about these verses for ourselves rather than thinking about these verses as well, I hope they're listening. I hope they're good for somebody else. These are really good verses for this racial group or for this national identity. No, no, no that we look at these verses and say, how does this impact how I think about my own racial or national identity? What matters, according to verse 19, is not our racial or ethnic or national identity, but our keeping the commandments of God. By the way, you might want to note that in the Old Testament, circumcision was commanded, and now he's saying, no, don't seek it. Some of the commands of the Old Testament do not apply universally to all of God's people for all time, and that's how we know, for example, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the laws in the Old Testament against homosexual behavior are timeless while laws, for example, about not eating shellfish are not. And there's a lot of people who want to try to make a lot of hay out of that, and clearly there is a distinction. It is a good thing to have appreciation for one's ethnic or national identity. Paul is reminding us, though, that there is something so much higher We've been invited compellingly 
to be a member of God's family. Do not ever equate your ethnic or national identity with Christianity. Because it's not. Your national identity has nothing to do with your being a Christian. Your ethnic identity has nothing to do with your being a Christian. Don't equate those things. Racial and national identity does not impact following the real call. And then as we come to the end of our, our uh, section here in 1 Corinthians 7, economic or social status is not as important as God's calling. Paul goes so far as to say, knowing who we are, our position in Christ, our sins forgiven, that we have the power to overcome sin, we have the Holy Spirit taking up, uh, indwelling our lives, we have a community of brothers and sisters in God's family, and we are already positionally seated with Christ in heavenly places with all of that, not even our position as a slave or as a free person is as important as God's effective call. You know, the things that we think of as the most important for our daily existence, they are not as important as God's effective call on your life. And so Paul says in verse 21, something rather dramatic, don't be concerned about being a slave. Are you kidding me, Paul? What a revolutionary thought to understand who we are in the wonderful providence of God to save us that our own standing as a slave we should not be concerned about. Don't let that status define you. Now, Paul is not saying by that that slavery is good. In fact, by his parenthesis, he's saying the opposite. He says, if you get an opportunity to be free, take it. What this means is that the individual should live above the fray of injustices done to him or her. Live above that fray by dwelling on these wonderful truths of what your relationship with God is like and what He has done from that 100 billion light year point of view in your life. It was on a someday, somebody touched me. I know it was the hand of the Lord. We should live above the fray of injustices. And also, the individual should take advantage of opportunities to better oneself. If you have an opportunity to be free, do it. The very fact that Paul says freedom should be sought implies that the Bible is not a pro-slavery document. But verse 22, slave and free are terms that require definition. He says the one who is called in the Lord as a slave, a bondservant, is actually God's free person. And the called free person is actually God's slave. What he means by that is that the person who's living in this world as a slave can live on this higher plane of knowing who he is in Christ, and he's free. He's absolutely free. 
And the person who walks around in this world as a free, independent person needs to recognize if he's a believer, he doesn't belong to himself. You are not your own. You're bought at a price. And you are therefore the slave of your master, Jesus. We can get very worked up about injustice, can't we? We can get very worked up about injustice. I think in this post-COVID world, people are getting more and more worked up over injustices. Just, just this morning, I was reading a story, and I, the, the details are unclear, so I may not have the story completely right. Forgive me if I don't get the details correct, but here's how I understood the story. A 26-year-old woman in Irmo, South Carolina, and a 23-year-old woman in Irmo were at a grocery store. They were in the parking lot. Something happened where one bumped into the other or something, and in the course of which they both got upset over the injustice done to each to the other one, and the 26-year-old spit on the 23-year-old's car, whereupon the 23-year-old took out a gun and shot and killed the 26-year-old woman. Now, I want you to think about that from the standpoint of how prickly we are, how our nerves are right on edge at all times thinking about the injustices that might be done to me or you. And what Paul is saying is think about your calling, brothers and sisters. Are we as ardent about the joy of the effective call of God in our lives as we are about relative injustices that happen to us? I'm sure that if we were to be able to interview both of those women, they would both say, how I wish I could take back my prickly desire for justice. The purchase of our real calling means that all, are, all believers are free and all are slaves. Do you see it there? Verse 23 you were bought with a price. Paul is just reiterating what he said in chapter 6, verse 20. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do not become bondservants of men. And so... The purchase price of our freedom was the blood of God's Son. Your body's not your own. You were bought at a price. Your social and economic status is not your own. You were bought at a price. Those high up on the social ladder need to think less highly of their position and more of Christ. Those that are low down on the social ladder need to think less about the degrading nature and injustice of their position, especially where they think negatively of themselves. Think more upon the pure grace of Christ and the effective call of salvation. Think of Lazarus and the rich man. So brothers, Paul concludes, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let me give you a few more words of application and then we're done. There are many people, particularly younger ones, think of junior high, high school, perhaps young adults, that worry a lot about being in, being popular, and they're afraid that in some way they are being isolated, perhaps because of their Christian views, 
perhaps because what they believe runs so counter to the flow of culture. To you, dear young brothers and sisters, remember your calling from God. Though you may be out with other people, by virtue of no effort of your own, no merit of your own, you are in with the God of the universe. Think of your calling. Others of us are worried about the number of likes we get on social media. Whether or not family members will treat us nicely or treat us meanly. Think of your calling and you will have joy. Second application, how does your effective call impact your pocketbook? If we really understood the unusual nature of God's invitation of grace and how he compellingly called us to himself, we would not be worried about the coming economic crisis, which it always is one. We would not be worried. We would say, Lord, it's all yours. I'm all yours. We would be less having a grip on this world and more free to spend it all for Christ. How does your effective calling impact how you, how you spend your time? The desires you have, more particularly in Paul's context, your desires for marriage or not marriage. What Paul is saying is your calling is way more important than any of those things and dwell much upon it. Now, I can only give you today a general call, an explanation of the gospel that Jesus came into this world as the God-man. He lived a perfect life and he died as a payment for our sins to take our place. And that if you put your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, repenting of your sins and turning in faith to him, you will be saved. You will be made right with God and he was buried and he rose from the dead to guarantee this calling will be effective in taking you all the way to glory. I can give you that general call. I can give you the promise that if you believe, you'll have eternal life. I can give you an invitation to repent and believe. But you know what my prayer is today? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit is at work in this room in anyone who has not believed and that the Holy Spirit will make that an effective call in your heart that brings you to say, yes, Lord, I believe in Jesus. A good definition of real revival is when a large group of people care only about God and his calling on their lives and nothing else matters. Somebody touched me. I know it was the hand of the Lord.
God, do this work in our hearts. Help us to think of our calling. It's so unusual that you would do this. We do not deserve it. Lord, may you reign in our lives. Be pleased to bring people to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive this invitation of good news that is for all people. Now, Lord, we pray you would bring real revival to our nation, a large group of people caring only about you and your calling on our lives and that nothing else would matter. In Jesus' name, amen.